I am so honored to be here today with Dr. John Verveke and Dr. Michael Levin. Both of these gentlemen have so enriched my lives with their work and their generosity to uh, share all of their knowledge with us. So those of us in this little corner will um, know of both of them. And so I'm going to put in my show notes some videos that link up to their work so that those of you who don't aren't familiar with them will understand why I'm having the two of them talk together. So um, Dr. John Verveke received his bachelor's from McMaster's in philosophy and a bachelor's in science from the University of Toronto with a specialty in cognitive science and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Toronto. And he now teaches there in the areas of perception, cognition, and cognitive neuroscience. And um, our little corner has profited from learning from John about the four E's of cognition and the four P's of knowing and also from his 50 episode series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And I hope that we get to explore meaning today. So, and Dr. Michael Levin received his bachelor's in computer science and also in biology from Tufts University and a PhD in genetics from Harvard with a postdoc in cell biology. Mike is also the principal investigator at the Levin Lab. There's lots of information on the Tufts website from his lab. It's just marvelous to explore. He's a distinguished professor in the Department of Biology and director of the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts University. So um, <clears throat> John's research is in cognition at the human level, I guess I could say, and Michael's, Mike's is at the cellular level. <clears throat> and uh, I know both of you have an interest in how this phenomena scales at all levels. And yeah. so I think it might be a good idea to start with how each of you define some of these terms. So. Let's maybe start with cognition and how you differentiate that or might differentiate that from intelligence and consciousness. I'll, I'll go first if you wish. Um, uh, so cognition, I would take as a much broader uh, category. Um, uh, it, it, although um, typically when we use it in cognitive science, there's an implicit reference to human cognition. So. Uh, just so there's not confusion around that. Uh, but I think the term cognition is uh, a broader term and it applies to uh, anything that is doing information processing in a manner that reliably allows it to solve problems and achieve goals that are in some way relevant to it as some kind of causal whole. Um, uh, and I do think that uh, what constitutes what we call intelligence um, is a feature that we take to be prototypically exemplified in human beings. And this is carried by the notion of general intelligence that we are capable of solving a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domains. And as I've argued in publication and presentation and in discussion, I think the core ability here is a feature I call relevance realization. That's the core ability uh, behind intelligence. Um, I would like to say that just up front, I've always been a strong advocate uh, because of the deep influence of Evan Thompson on me on the deep continuity hypothesis. I think Mike's work is exemplary of this um, and, and, and not just, I, I don't mean just, I'm not just categorizing it. I think it's insightful and exemplary of how this could work in powerful ways. Um, I do think um, it also, uh, 
gives some evidence to a claim I've made a little bit more humorously, but uh, but at, but but with some seriousness in it, that I think biology is the, the philosophically important science right now. I think physics is philosophically overrated. There hasn't been significant theoretical advance in a long time where in biology, biology is generating ideas that immediately, almost immediately percolate out into cognitive mm -hmm. science and other areas and other domains. And so I just also wanted to compliment Mike on his work. I've read some of your papers and I just wanted to say um, that um, we'll probably differ in detail, but I think in broad, broad strokes, there's a lot of convergence. I, I am very, very grateful to Karen uh, for introducing me to your work because your work, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to sound exploitative, but your work allows me to strengthen arguments I've been, in, been independently making. So I wanted to also thank you for that. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, that's that's very kind, and and I'm I'm also really um, happy to have this opportunity to talk because I uh, I do think there are these kind of scale-free principles that uh, apply all the way up through uh, the levels of complexity, and I'm just delighted to you know be able to bounce ideas off of you that might be much more relevant to the human context than what we normally deal with. You know, so I think I think that's a great opportunity we have here. So yeah, so so thank you both. Um, I guess I guess with respect to the definitions, uh, I, I I agree in that I think um, cognition is a kind of umbrella term for lots of different uh, lots of different capacities. Um, intelligence, I take to be uh, a kind of uh, competency in navigating some particular space. That might be the old familiar three-dimensional space that we're very used to watching animals and humans um, navigate with various degrees of, of success to, to, to have their various goals met. But there are also some, some unconventional spaces that we study. So the space of all possible gene expressions, the space of um, uh, possible physiological states, what we call morphospace, space, which is the, the, the space of possible anatomical configurations, for example, for your, for your various body organs. So we, we study um, the ability of various systems, natural, artificial, and then even chimeric systems to navigate these spaces in interesting ways. So some of them are very, uh, very sort of modest capacity. So all they know how to do is go in a straight line. And if they're blocked, that's it. Others are very clever and they can find new solutions in these spaces. In fact, some are really clever and they find new spaces to explore. Um, so intelligence for me is, is all about that. It's all about navigating these, these problem spaces in, in, in novel with some degree of, 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 of novelty. And I think, you know, in, in our work, I mean, I, I'm very interested in frameworks for understanding these things that are not tied to specific uh, life histories or specific compositions. So I want a way to understand cognition and intelligence that does not require that we have a brain of a familiar mammalian organization that would work with uh, alien life, it would work with synthetic life, it would work with artificial uh, intelligence. It should, we should have a framework that is able to, to look at these things regardless of what they're made of or how they got here, meaning designed, evolved, or some combination. So I, you know, I, I tend to stretch um, these concepts from, from cognition, the kid like cognition, intelligence, and so on. I, I stretch them onto systems that, uh, maybe some people find uh, surprising that, that one would use these terms, but, you know, I think we can talk about why, why one would do that. So, well, I'm just going to pop in here for a second, because I was reading a paper that I think that you did together with Chris Fields. I've got the notes here and I, and I just have, it was a paper with Chris Fields. So I'm assuming you were also on it. Um, where you're talking about meaning and you're focusing on three questions foundational to the study of meaning. And John, when I read these three questions, I just thought it sounds like they're talking about relevance realization. So John, you yeah. can tell me whether I'm right or not, okay? 
I, I, I thought the same thing when I read it. I oh. read the Oh, so you're talking about those three questions. How do living systems distinguish between components of their environments, considering some to be objects worthy of attention and others to be background that is safely ignored? And how do living systems switch their attentional focus from one object to another? And how do they create and maintain memories of past events, including past perceptions? So, John, when you talked about relevance realization, you said you held that at the human level. Um, mm. But I think that Mike and Chris are talking about this scale free idea when they're talking about it. So what would you do with that, John? Um, well, for, I would add one more thing. I think there's a question of how the memory is um, accessed and coordinated is also a significant problem. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's memory is not just sort of a lookup table. Uh, so I, I would add that in. Um, I guess for me, um, I, 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 I've already sort of indicated that I'm not opposed to extending the ideas of relevance realization outside of human cognition. I agree with Mike about the very real possibility of the multiple realizability of cognition and intelligence, that we don't have a, to have a particular uh, substrate. Um, I have another uh, assumption, but I don't think Mike violates it, that relevance realization depends on a, uh, being implemented by an autopoetic system, because I think only self-making systems yes. properly can have needs. And without needs, it does not make sense to talk about relevance um, or importance or any of the synonyms. Um, so I would add that in as well. But as far as I can tell, Mike is already in agreement with that yeah. um, in, in powerful ways. Um, the issue I get, I don't know if there's an issue of disagreement here. Because um, I'm, I'm facing what you might call, I think that, that the mechanisms, the trade-off processes by which relevance realization occurs, and I've been arguing this since 2012, um, are, are so similar, perhaps isomorphic to how uh, the evolution of species occurs, the selection and variation processes, replication, uh, a feedback cycle, et cetera. And in fact, that for me has been a basis of a claim for that some of our knowing isn't done through representation, but by actually instantiating the very principles within our cognition that are extant and powerful in reality. So I've already, I'm already deeply committed to that. I suppose it may therefore be, and Mike, you can correct me on this, but I suppose it may be a difference of degree rather than kind. I'm interested in the kind of relevance realization that is, we're finding difficult to give uh, to artificial intelligence, the kind of relevance realization that makes for, as I said, a, 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 a problem solver that can solve a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domains in a way that is, is somehow integrated and unified. It's not chaotic or random. Um, so I suppose what that means for me, and I'm also interested, uh, what that means for me is I'm interested in that, that level of uh, relevance realization that overlaps with 
that the main general capacity for cognition, and as I've elsewhere, uh, elsewhere argued, plausibly the central function of consciousness. Um, and I, I, I know that Mike is much more careful around attributions of consciousness, at least in the papers I've read. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I, like I, 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 in one sense, I'm already committed because I uh, uh, to the idea that there is a structural isomorphism between the trade-off mechanisms, what I call the virtual engine that's operative uh, within intelligence and what's operative within evolution. They're both dynamic systems with virtual engines of selection and variation generation that shape an ongoing feedback cycle. I think that's what dynamical systems theory is largely all about. Um, so again, I'm not, I'm, I'm already committed to that. I think it's the foundation for like the idea of participatory knowing. I, I even, you know, in conversation with Jonathan Pajot, I've considered the idea that there might be something fundamental to ontology uh, in terms of why selection and variation keeps showing up at all of these levels by which sense is being made. Why is that the case in this scale of invariant manner, unless it's not pointing to something important about the ontology uh, that uh, we find ourselves in? So that's my somewhat tangled, uh, but uh, attempt to be precise in an answer. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, I, yeah, I, I resonate with with a lot of these points. I mean, the fundamental uh, place that I'm coming from is uh, when I first, as a, as a child, uh, was made aware of the fact that we all develop by this embryonic development process from an oocyte. It, it, you know, it, I mean, this basically turned everything for me up sort of upside down for the rest of my life, because it, it's very clear right here every day you have this, this incredible journey from, from something you might call just physics. And I hate that term, but people, people use it, you know, this is just yeah. physics. It was, this is some sort of quiescent oocyte. It's a, it's a little bag of chemicals that really isn't doing anything. Nobody would call it, you know, cognitive and all of that. And then very slowly, but surely, it turns into something like whatever we are that will make claims about second order cognition and we are not machines and all these kinds of things. But that process is, is extremely slow. And there's never really some lightning bolt that suddenly sort of turns it you know, from, from just physics to now you're cognitive. It's a very slow, gradual process. And so th that, that process seems to me to be at the core of all of the things that we're talking about is how do we become, you know, slowly but surely we become gradually, we become minds out of some piece of physics and chemistry. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of in a, it's in an inescapable fact. And uh, the, the most amazing thing about that process is that it isn't hardwired. So there are lots, at least in most creatures, there's, it has amazing plasticity so that if you were to inter intervene along the way, it shows not only the ability to, you know, in William James's definition of intelligence, so the same ends by different means, right? So not only does it, does it show the ability to get to the same point, despite all kinds of weird things you might do to it, but in fact, oftentimes it, it has these, what we might call creative solutions that are completely novel, that are never normally done in, in standard development or standard evolution to solve these problems. And so, you know, with, 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 with Chris Fields and, uh, and in other, um, in other contexts, we, we think of, uh, very, very hard about how does this arise? You know, what happens at the, at the, at this auto, exactly what, what John just said, this, this autopoetic uh, appearance of the self for the first time, right? Very primitive, long before you're a human or anything like that. 
And um, I think this, this uh, what, what you've been emphasizing, which is the, the, the tracking of salience and what's actually important to you and so on, is really fundamental to driving everything else. Because let's just, I mean, just here's a very simple story one can tell. When you are a simple agent, uh, because unlike AI, and I think you made a good point there too, unlike modern AIs, you, you, you live under a really strong resource constraint. So you don't have all the energy you need to do whatever you want. You don't have all the time to do whatever you want. You have to be efficient or you're going to be eaten. You will not survive if, if, you, if you don't get efficient about what? About using your limited energy budget to sense, right? To sense and to act on things that have causal potency. You have to get really good at what now scientists are only recently, you know, Eric Hole, um, uh, he's a scientist in my center. He developed a, an amazing uh, toolkit for really quantifying causality. It's which, which it's, it's a striking finding because up till now, that was a philosophical question, you know, reductionism or not, is there power to these higher levels? He actually developed some math that answers the question. It's amazing. And so, and so, so we are only now able to do it formally, but, but every creature can do that informally by saying, by recognizing that this nexus of between various causes and effects, I'm going to, I'm going to coarse grain that, and I'm going to call that my, my arm, or I'm going to call it a cat or whatever I'm going to call it. I'm now tracking that and I'm spending all kinds of energy um, you know, tracking it and trying to manipulate it. And then this here is a wall and I'm going to spend almost no energy talking to this because that gets me nowhere. And so so the ability to do this kind of causal uh, partitioning of your environment into things that make a difference, things that are really going to pay off when you spend your limited energy budget to, to, to track them and to communicate with them and to try to force them to do various things and so on. So, so I think right after that, one, once you get good at that, the next thing you could, might do is you might turn that same lens onto yourself. And you might realize that, hey, wait a minute, uh, I'm, the, I'm a, a great causal agent. And you might establish some boundaries that where, you know, your own model of yourself and where you, you, where you end and where the outside world begins. That's not obvious at all in biology where that, you know, every cell is some other cell's external environment in your body, right? So the question is, well, how, so how, how do the different organs sort of make that? And we can talk about where, how, how embryos arise in a blastoderm and all that, but but that that process of recognizing yourself as a as a as a causal agent is really important piece of autopoetic self building. And I can easily imagine that later on um, that can that can translate into things like um, uh, once once you start to tell stories about other things being causal agents and yourself being a causal agent, not only does that help all kinds of social. Uh, interactions because once you believe that certain things do th certain objects do things you can say well that one uh, uh didn't reciprocate last time so 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 for, you know forget it we're you know i'm not going to reciprocate this time or conversely that's my buddy he's always reciprocate so you you need a sense of agency for that and and for saying things like I have a model of myself that involves free will meaning i am an agent that does things i'm not just a you know a, a, um, a piece of this of this uh, massive uh uh, kind of a pool of causes and effects that can't be divided up in any way, you know, kind of the way that presumably, you know, Laplace's demon sees things, right? If there was one that just a bunch of causes, a bunch of effects, and you don't partition it in any way. Living things have to partition it into uh, what what to them are salient causal um, nodes. So I, th I think, uh, yeah, I think that's, a, that's such a central concept. So I wanted to ask uh, um, a question then. Uh, well, I want to ask two questions. Uh, perhaps um, a little bit more specific. So uh, first is sort of a philosophical question. And um, so one of the things emphasized by the deep continuity hypothesis um, is right, a rejection of strict reductionism. 
And I noticed in your paper, you, you invoke in multiple places, top-down causation, and, you, and you, 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 you criticize people, you criticize biology for taking just a, a bottom-up approach, uh, yeah. which means you're committed to some kind of significant emergence. There are holes that have a causal power. As you say, you know, it's easy to teach an animal to learn, but if I tried to manipulate all the individual neurons, that would take me forever, right? So there's, there's, that hole has a causal power that is not explainable just by the aggregation of the component parts. Is that a fair attribution to you? Yeah, yeah, that's quite fair, yeah. Right, so, so the interesting thing, um, the interesting sort of conceptual problem, this is why it's a philosophical problem, is to try and get clear about what the relevant balance is. What I mean by that, right? There's identity going all the way down, right? Or, or, or else we wouldn't be even, even be having this conversation. Uh, but it's not the logical identity or even the causal identity of strict, of strict reductionism. So there's also differentiation all the way up, if I can put it that way, in important ways. Um, the differentiation in the sense of new emerging causal powers. And so I've been trying to figure out what kind of ontology actually properly talks about and gives an intelligible integration of these two. And I wondered if you've had any thoughts around that. That's the, that's, that's the first question. I know there's a very big philosophical question, but I can tell from your writing, you're very philosophically astute. So I hope, I think it's a fair question to ask. Um, yeah, so 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 I can, I'll, I'll test out. I, I've I've been thinking about this hard, and I, I these these are all provisional ideas, but I'll test them out and, of course, and, and of see see, yeah. see what you think. I mean, these are tough tough issues, but see, let's see what you think. So so one thing we can we can think about, and this is the this this comes out of some conversations that Eric Hull and I have been having, is if you think about let's let's just, let's imagine for a second that Laplace's demon could exist. Right, there's all kinds of reasons why why it can't, but let's let's assume, yeah. let's assume yeah. let's assume for the moment that. That yeah, that basically uh, uh, there's there's no um, deterministic chaos or anything like that, and it, it really can track every you know every 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 molecule and every every particle and all that. Now the thing the thing with that is uh, that while while it's true that that kind of process tracking the microstates would be able to predict everything that was going to happen from a certain scenario going forward, what it strikes me is that that kind of that kind of way of of dealing with the world. Is is an observer only. It cannot act, and the reason it can't act is because once you once you've committed to only tracking the microstates, and you don't yeah. believe in mesoscale or higher scale um, anything, all the states are the same to you. So, for example, if you, if you were asked to play chess, all the different states in which the king is just slightly moved over, and the you know, and the and the pawn is a little bit tilted, makes no difference to the chess. But to you, all of these are equally different. They are all different. And so um, all of these states are completely different. And so you couldn't possibly choose a next step. You could predict what would happen once someone set up a scenario and asked you what will happen next. You could do that, but you would never act. You couldn't act because all of the preferences in terms of um, acting so that something rather than something else would happen, they all they're all choices between macrostates. They all require you to be able to distinguish that this group of microstates is a win in chess. This group of microstates are all the states where I don't starve and this is something else. If you don't believe in those groupings, you can't act. All you can do is be an observer, a passive observer to uh, the states that somebody else sets up. So I think, so I think the problem with this kind of reductionism, unlike uh, among other problems, is that it, um, it's a worldview that is incompatible with 
what we really want from a worldview, which is to help you do new things. You want, you know, a scientific worldview is supposed to help you make new discoveries. It's supposed to help you do new engineering. This is an incredibly sterile view. It talks only about prediction of what someone else had already established, a starting state, and it gives you no way of, of doing it, of actually doing anything. It's not a participatory view. It's sort of, it's sort yes. of um, you know, you're an observer only. So I think, so I think that, you know, given what we want from, from these kind of worldviews, this thing fails on, 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 on the most important account. Um, the other, the other thing uh, I can, I can sort of say about that is that, uh, I mean, literally now with this, with the, with the new developments in causal emergence, there is now math to literally analyze a given situation and to determine whether or not um, the, 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 the most work is done at the lowest level. And in many cases, it is true. In many cases, that's true. But in, many, but, but in other cases, it isn't. And so we no longer, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that, the, that we are now living in a, in a kind of a world where we no longer have to have philosophical beliefs about it. You can calculate. There's literally a toolkit. There's a, there's a piece of software. And, and, and you can calculate how much of the causal work is done at the different levels for a given system. Now, now you can only sort of formally solve it for quite small systems, right? You can't, you can't, you know, the math blows up like crazy, but, but but the implications are quite clear that, that there literally are scenarios in which most of the work is done at not the lowest level. So I, I, you know, um, in important ways that that question has been moved from, from philosophical endless debates to actually a a, a rigorous uh, kind of empirical question that you can now do the calculation. Well, I'd like to see, I, I, I uh, don't doubt you, by the way, but I'd like to see uh, the map. Um, sure. that, that, that'd be really wonderful because I've been uh, making similar arguments. I've been making epistemological arguments um, around the fact that um, any, that any worldview um, has to give a proper real ontological causal status to science and scientists and people making measurements Yes. And, that requ- and that requires that they have an ontological existence that is in some sense real. Um, mm-hmm. You don't want to get a ontology that only the bottom level is real because then the scientists and their measurements and their theories and their calculations are become unreal. And then the basis for making the assertions about the yeah. bottom ontology yeah. undermine themselves uh, yep. completely. Um, and Karen, I think Smith is making a very similar argument in... Uh, the vertical ascent with the measurement. Problem. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of stuff converging around this. Okay, so that really, that, thank you, Mike. That was a very helpful answer. And I'm very excited to, to see them out. So for me, I've looked at sort of on ontologies and I've tried to, you know, and what I've, I've been looking for ontologies that, <laughs> what is odd sentence? Anyways, <laughs> ones that have both bottom-up emergence and top-down emanation, top-down causation, bottom-up. And, and, and historically, the best example I've been able to find is, uh, is Neoplatonism, um, because mm-hmm. it has consistently talked about this. And it also talks very similar about sort of the, you know, the emanation down and emergence up of mind-like properties and intelligibility yeah. properties. All you know, these are these take pride of place within those ontologies. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm wondering if 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 you think because I've been making the argument that I think we are on the cusp of a kind of revival of this Neoplatonic ontology, and for me that's important um, in a in a way that might go beyond sort of your particular purview, but because 
if we could integrate that Neoplatonic worldview with very powerful biological and cognitive science worldview, like we're talking about now, that Neoplatonic worldview also has a legacy of being kind of the cultural cognitive grammar of a lot of the spirituality of the West. Mm. To my mind, that could help integrate science and spirituality in an intellectually and philosophically rigorous and respectable manner in a way that could help address what I call the meaning crisis. The fact that the standard way, the standard picture of the world does not have any proper ontological place for us within it. I just wondered if you had, if you had any sort of similar thoughts along those lines or, or even how that just strikes you as a proposal. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. And, and, and the vast majority of it, I haven't even begun to, you know, in terms of the meaning, I mean, you're, you're the expert in, 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 that, in that aspect. But, but, but the funny thing is I have been thinking hard about this kind of a platonic worldview, which, which again, this is not something I would ever bring up in a, you know, in a, in a talk to molecular biologists or yeah, anything like this, right? Yeah, of this course, is, of this, course. This is kind of the only, the only forum in which, in which it makes sense to bring that up. But, but, but I'll tell you, I mean, here, here we, we're confronting it in the laboratory all the time. And, and yeah, I, don't know of, yeah. I don't know of a better way to start to think about this. I mean, here, here's the simple example, and then I'll give you a real example. The simple example is, let's say that um, you were evolving some sort of creature that needed to be a triangle. And so you evolve the first angle and then you evolve the second angle. Well, you don't need to evolve the third angle. You already know what the third angle has to be. Right, right. You don't need to evolve it. Now, Now that's a curious thing. Where does that fact live? Now, the, this is yes. something that, of course, mathematicians have been talking about forever. And this idea that there's this some sort of platonic world where these truths of mathematics hang out. There are so many things like this. When you when you uh, when evolution discovers ion channels, which are these proteins, right? That are that are many of them are they they control the voltage, but they are themselves voltage sensitive. These things are basically transistors. They are voltage gated current conductances. As soon as you've you've discovered the transistor, you can now make logic gates. It's it's very That's simple. With a couple of transistors, you can make logic gates. Logic gates come with a truth table. This wonderful piece of uh, logic. Where in the you know you, you you evolution didn't didn't have to specify the truth table. All evolution did was find the ion channel. After that, you suddenly get this miraculous gift from from the laws of of logic wherever they live, and it's it's a free it's what physicists will often call a free lunch. It's this thing that you don't need to you know you sort of yes. get that for free from the laws of physics. So, so we have free lunches from geometry, from uh, from from algebra, from um, computation, from uh, all of these different uh, areas where evolution doesn't need to uh, discover all of that stuff. What it does need to make is it needs to make a proper machine that is able to harness these aspects that then live. Yes. I don't know where they live, right? So, so this is where I start thinking about this platonic idea because we see this all the time. Evolution finds the right piece of hardware and immediately all these things become available to you that were not available before you made the machine. So you need some kind of almost like an index into this world of, of possibilities. But once you have that index, you have, you have access to all the stuff that you did not have to evolve from scratch. And, and, and a simple um, kind of real example that, that, that we confront is we can, we've, taken, um, we've taken skin cells from a, from a frog embryo and we show that left to their own devices, when you sort of liberate them from the rest of the other cells that normally bully them into being kind of a, two, a boring two-dimensional skin layer, they make this thing called a xenobot. Uh, it's basically a um, kind of a, uh, a self-motile new proto-organism. It swims around, it does mazes, it interacts with each other. Wow. They, wow. Um, they, they, make, they make copies of themselves the way von Neumann wanted by going around and finding loose skin cells and packing them together into a little ball that then becomes the next generation of xenobots. Okay. All of that with a standard frog genome. We don't we don't edit the genome for those. They just that's just what they already do. 
but but unlike every other creature you've ever seen, when you ask, okay, why is it a certain color? Why does it have this many legs? Why is it? The answer is usually, well, there's a long history of selection and everybody else died yeah, off. Yeah. And so you've selected for the, okay, there's never been any Xenobots. There's never been any selection right. to be a good Xenobot. Right. Where, where within 48 hours, those cells figure out how to be a completely different organism, have different capacities and, and do all this stuff. Where does that come from? Well, how, how is it right without a long history of specific selection to be a great xenobot? Why is it that the that the Xenopus um, Lavis genome knows how to do this as well? And so the and so you're left with this idea that what evolution's actually doing is it, it's not finding specific solutions to specific environments. What it's doing is making problem solving machines that can index into certain aspects of this incredible pool of of, of free gifts from, 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 from mathematics, from, you know, from, from, from logic, from who knows yeah. what else is, is out there, you know? Uh, and, and that's, to me, that's a very uh, uh, kind of uh, neoplatonic view that, that these things yes. exist and it's on us to, to sort of index into them and make use of them. That is so cool. That is so cool. That is really cool. So I want to shift to another question then now, um, uh, which is now at the opposite end. Well, maybe not. The first was very philosophical, and I really appreciated your answer. This is very exciting for me. But I was wondering at the other end, uh, so this is more of the uh, psychologist speaking. I mean, you, you, you clearly have provided good evidence for fractal levels of cognition um, and information exchange, and there's communication flowing up and down between these levels. Uh, so I wondered if you'd ever turned that towards a specific issue, which has always been sort of problematically present in psychology, but especially in clinical psychology and in medicine, which is like the placebo effect. Because yeah. the placebo effect, yeah. right, especially for like pure reductionists, is a very hard thing to explain. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. Very, yep. very hard thing to explain. Yep. Yep. But yep. one of the things that uh, occurred to me as I was reading it is, it looks like you've actually provided, right, a, a, a framework that could give, you know, a plausible explanation for how it could occur. I mean, I can't do it with your expertise, but I was thinking, well, surely there can be, right, there's information processing here and it could be passed down this fractal chain um, in, in important uh, ways, and that would help to explain uh, something like the placebo effect, yeah, and, and that may that may strike you as rather sideways of ma your main goals. But like, if we could get an explanation of that, rather yeah. than just yeah. pointing to it, right? Yeah. Our abilities to you know to practice to run psychological experiments, to run clinical trials, to propose medicines yeah. would be significantly improved. In, in, uh, and so Absolutely. I just wondered if, if that had, yeah. had occurred to you. Oh, yeah, this is this is so, so critical and important. We, we actually a couple of years ago, we published an example of um, a, a computer model of the placebo effect in, uh, in gene oh, regulatory wow. gene regulatory networks, never right. mind brains, never mind or just a bear. Right. And, and the way it works is, is, is like this. Imagine um, the typical model of a gene regulatory network is just a bunch of nodes, let's say 10 or 50 or however many, and there's some arrows. This one turns that gene on, that gene turns this gene off, this one turns that on. And so it's this, it's this like hairy ball of interactions where each gene turns an on and off the other. And so normally what you would do is you would use some sort of dynamical systems theory to say, okay, it has some attractors. This is what it could, these are the states yeah. that it could do. And these gene regulatory networks are really critical for building the body in the first place, health and disease, all kinds of pathways that... So, so typically you would look at this thing and you'd say, well, 
I can see all the interactions. There's no magic here. Uh, the agency sort of on the scale of where, you know, of, of, of agency of this thing, it's gotta be all the way on the left. This thing's just a piece of physics. There's no, there's no mind there. So what we did was we said, well, you can't just decide that from an armchair. Let's find out. Let's find out how much of the tools of behavior science actually ports to this thing. Because, right. because I was interested in decision-making during the cellular decision-making during development and things like this. And so what we tried were some just really simplistic um, behaviorist uh, techniques that you would use to train something. Uh, uh, I, said, I said that, we, you know, my postdoc and I did, did this. I said, I said, pretend it's a, I said, Pavlov's dog. Right. Pretend right. this thing is a dog. Let's just try right. training right. it. And what I mean is that to any 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 one pick pick any one gene and use that as your conditional uh, condition stimulus. The other one is your is your unconditioned stimulus, and pick a third one that's your response. And let's just right. see what happens. And so what we found is that biological networks, and we looked at like forty or fifty of these biological networks. They have six different kinds of learning that they can do, including associative learning, like like Pavlovian conditioning. If you wow. pick the if you pick the nodes correctly, and so right, what that right. means is exactly what you just said. It's a it's a it's an example of um, uh, that that kind of placebo effect because you can do this. Imagine this: you have one drug that very strongly causes some effect in this network. Okay, that that drug targets one node. That's your unconditioned stimulus, and when you apply it, boom, this other thing turns on. Okay, it percolates to the network. This other thing turns on. You've got another drug, that's your neutral stimulus, and, and it hits a different node. And when you hit that node, nothing happens. It's neutral, it's completely neutral. Well, it turns out that with many of these networks, and by the way, not so much with random networks, which means evolution actually likes this, this is a biological thing. If you present those two stimuli together some number of time, times, what will happen in the future is that just giving the neutral drug alone is now sufficient to, to hit this thing, just like wow. Pavlov's, you know, dog. That to me, that's an example of um, of the placebo effect because yeah. what you're saying to the what you're saying to the to the to the um, pharmacologist is I can train this tissue so that you are going to give it a completely inert sugar pill and it's going to act as if you just gave it one of your most potent drugs. And, and, the, and the reason you might want to do that is because some of those potent drugs are actually too strong to be used in humans. Yes, they have to yes, too much, exactly, exactly. right? So, so you could, so, so I think, I mean, I think you're right on the money. If, if, if the, if the gene regulatory networks can have placebo effect, I mean, it only stands to reason it scales, it will scale up with, right. And, and I'm very, have you, um, I'm, I'm sure you're probably more familiar than I with this, but um, have you seen um like Albert Mason stuff on psycho um, dermatology? The, the, no, I have. <laughs> Okay, you should. I'll send you. I'll remind me afterwards. I'll send you. Like this. This is this is amazing. So so um, this guy uh, and unfortunately he he passed away. I tried to send him an email. And I found out he already passed. He uh he 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 was a he was a hypnotist that um basically he was delivering babies and um and he didn't like using anesthetics because he felt that it would yeah. impact uh, you know and so and so he decided to use hypnosis. So he started doing. He was in the UK. He started doing deliveries of babies under hypnosis. No no anesthesia his fellow doctor sort of made, made fun of him and said, well, you, you know, if hypnosis is so great here, and they gave him a kid with um, uh, some sort of uh, horrible skin disease on both arms. So, you know, his skin was basically black. He was missing some kind of uh, one of the important skin cells he was missing. So, so he found out, and then for, for decades, he ran this, this practice of, of, of um, uh, uh, hypnodermatology, whereby giving suggestions, he could call, he could clear up certain kinds of skin disorders. Yes. Now this is this is this is very important as as you said going across levels right because you're communicating on on a very high level with language you're saying you know your left arm and in fact he did that he he started by clearing one arm not the other so which which is you know just amazing and so yeah. uh, right and so and so but but that somehow filters down into the molecular 
signals that it needs to, yes. to that, that the skin cells need to do whatever. So it's crossing multiple levels. And then the, the, the amazing thing at the end of his, uh, so this is a set of lectures um, that he gave uh, of like an interview. At the end, he said he, he left his practice and he became a, uh, um, uh, a, a, a psychiatrist and, a, and a, you know, doing, doing counseling because what he realized was that dealing with problems at that level, what, what would happen is the specific symptoms would clear up as they should, but it would pop up somewhere else. So he was yes. noticing that his patients, right? So, so yeah, their skin cleared up, but now they started smoking or they had to get a divorce because they were too, whatever. So, and, and then, and then, so, so he tried to climb to an even higher level and say, let's see if we can resolve this on some sort of psychological level. But, but I find, I think, I think what you identified is one of the most important things for medicine for the next uh, you know, century is, is understanding that, that cross-level connections and saying, what is it that, um, what, what is the interface to these cells and, and apparently your, 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 uh, your, your, your brain and your ability to comprehend eventually filters down to control that, uh, to so, some uh, mechanisms that can control the cells. And, you know, just as a last thing, we shouldn't be terribly surprised about this. I, I, re I realized, uh, you know, just recently, if you say to someone, I can uh, voluntarily change the resting potential of 30% of my body cells, let's say you're crazy. You can't, you can't voluntarily control your resting potential. Well, how do you how do you get up out of bed in the morning? That's exactly what you're doing. You're voluntarily changing yeah. the, the 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 bioelectrical properties of your muscle cells. That's what you're doing. You you actually do have bioelectric control over some of your body cells and and maybe many of your body cells that you don't you know that you don't necessarily use or know about. And so yeah, so so that so so using you know therapy hypnosis what you know whatever it's going to be as an interface to that low level cellular system is going to be, it's got to be the future of medicine. I'm, I'm sure of it. Trying to micromanage it with drugs is temporary, I think. Can I jump in here for a second? Because you just, you just hit one of my triggers. Um, <clears throat> I've been working for a, many years with a guy who, I guess the world would probably call him a massage therapist, but that's not what he actually does. He's actually developed a thing that he calls um, reposturing. And what he does is he works on the skeletal and the, the musculature and the fascia and all the things that connect everything together so that you could have a significant back injury of some sort or a significant um, incapacity in one part of your body. And what he does is he gets every single thing stretched out. And then when he gets it all stretched out, the body just takes care of itself and lines itself back up again. The spine will reorganize into, it's very hard to describe what it is that he does, but I know it works because he's done it on me, but he's gone beyond that in, in what happens quite frequently. And I, this sounds really woo woo. I know it sounds woo woo, but I've experienced it that when some parts of the human body get tense and react out of maybe some sort of trauma that you've had in the past or some um, emotional difficulties, psychological difficulties that you may not even be aware of. And so certain parts of your body will really tighten up, especially this area around the saddle. The legs will draw in and make that whole area very tight so that the hips become immobile and it's hard to walk. And when he worked on that and got that, um, and it's, it's quite a long, painful process, but once he gets the whole thing stretched out, I experienced what I can only call 
a, like an electrical signal that went from the tips of my toes all the way up through the top of my head and all the way out through my hands, a buzzing that just went through my entire body and caused my whole body to relax. And it changed my, my psyche at the same time that it changed my physical body. Now that sounds to me like what you're talking about when, when you talk about something that goes down through all the levels that's meeting the need at some lower level, could that be a bioelectric signal that somehow comes from the top down or maybe even, I mean, who knows? I, I think he was working with chakras, but he doesn't use the chakra language. And I don't know anything about the whole chakra thing. John might know more about that than I do. Does that sound like anything you've ever heard of before, John? It sounds, I mean, I've, I've read documented cases of things like that and Kundalini experiences and uh, Chi. Um, See, I don't know anything about any of those things. So I don't come at it with some sort of presupposition that that's going to happen. I just know I experienced it. And I know other people that have experienced it when he's working on them. So, you know, I, there's something about the bioelectrical signaling has something to do with this whole top down and bottom up thing. So I think what Mike and I are talking about makes it a, 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 a hypothesis to be considered. The problem with this the placebo, if the placebo is, we have to be sort of very ruthlessly empirical about this precisely yeah. because of the power of the placebo effect, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, I'm epistemologically where I, like, Karen, I'm not saying, like what you're saying is, could it be, is it now in the realm of scientific possibility as opposed to woo-woo? Yes, I, I would be willing to think of, I would be willing to countenance that as, right? Um, like we're, we're, we're discovering stuff about like, like you know, you know that, that this kind of hyper multi-level coordination that's going on in things like the one inch punch. Now it's not magic, but people can do, I, I think I can do it, right? And you can measure it. They can get up to like 70% of a full punch in a way that is using the coordination system of the small musculature very differently than how it's standardly used. And these are measurable things. My concern when, 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 when I hear these things though is, I don't know. Right, I, I really don't know precisely because, right? I think people have a tremendous power to placebo themselves into certain things, um, and and so what your what your statement does for me is arouse uh, a, a genuine curiosity. I, I want to do. I would want to do like, well, can we find? Can we reliably reproduce this? Once we can reliably reproduce it, can well, if we control for other things, does it still exist? We, so reliable reproduction. Then we look for construct validity. And after construct validity, can we integrate it into already existing construct? Then I would, be, I would feel that I would be in a position to answer the question. That's what I typically try to do with Wu phenomena. I try to bring them progressively through that kind of regime. Well, could there be some sort of a connection to the noise to signal ratio or the way that stochastic resonance will amp a signal when, when, when you get this? Because I know that they've used the, even they've even used the stochastic resonance thing to create vibrations in the floor that, so that when people put their feet on it, that signal will go up through the body and actually have some sort of a healing effect on the body. 
but stochastic resonance is used all the time in, in uh, like, you know, audio work to amp a signal and make it more yeah, understandable. Yeah. I guess what I'd say back to, and then I'll be quiet so Mike can speak, is um, I like, yes, maybe. And I've also heard many other alternative explanations of possible mechanisms. Um, and so, again, there's a real danger of all kinds of confounded conflation. And um, that, that does not deny the phenomenon under investigation. It makes me say, I wanna be very, very careful in how I go about establishing claims about the causal mechanisms that underlie the phenomenon, precisely because, like, because of the power of the placebo effect. Like, like you, you know, and we, we've known about this even in, in certain ways for a long time, the clever Hans phenomena, right, and other things, and, right? If you can get people to do, a, because of the, the power of implicit learning and placebo, people can sort of shape themselves relatively unconsciously to particular metaphysics and ontology quite readily. Um, that's one of the great gifts, but it's also one of the great flaws. And so um, I would say- Well, that's the, great, that's the great thing about doing it with rigorous science is that you can't have any impact on the meaning crisis if you're just talking. <laughs> it has to be, right? Exactly. It has to speak to the people who are, are in the exactly. scientific worldview. So that's exactly why I asked Mike the question I asked before, which is, you know, I see what he's doing and I think also converging with what I'm doing as moving towards, you know, a different kind of ontology, an ontology that can get science and spirituality talking together in a very rigorous, but nevertheless, you know, meaningful fashion. But I've been talking too much. I, I, I want to let give Mike a chance to reply. Well, I mean, so 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 I 100% I agree with with uh, kind of the methodology that you laid out for how one would study these things. That's exactly what I would think. I, I don't know anything specifically about the examples that that you've mentioned. The only the only things I, I will say is that um, we will we'll, we'll, a couple of things. One is that we know that that biomechanical signals, including bioelectrical signals and uh, at the cellular level, are they're a kind of cognitive glue. Those are the things that bind cells together into larger constructs. So, so when individual cells can handle sort of cell level goals, met 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 metabolics and other things, but, but a collection of cells can do uh, uh, tissue level things like have, have shape and morphogenesis and so on. And so that, what, what, what enables them to do that are biomechanical properties that are field-like and, and bioelectrical computations and so on. And so I, I wouldn't be shocked at all if that same um, kind of strategy propagated all the way up so that a particular biomechanical adjustment of a complex system would then percolate into not just the physical uh, structure of it, but the information content. I mean, that's what the bioelectric system really is for. It's not just so, uh, another piece of physics. It actually mediates the uh, information content of the organ, the, bo the body, and of course, in the brain, that's, that's obvious that that happens. So, so I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised by this at all. And, and, and the other thing I'll say is that <clears throat> I think I think you know John. Yeah, absolutely right. We need to understand the contribution of the 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 uh, the placebo comp component of that. The actual like, okay, what was actually done on a mechanistic level? But what's interesting to me about that is that I think we need to move to a place where. So I think I think for for example, c currently most uh, studies of pharmacology 
what they would like to do is to get rid of the placebo effect and yes. null it out in yes. some fashion, right? And what they want to remain with is the purely molecular, I have designed a drug, yes. it binds the protein, and I know exactly what it's going to do, right? I think down the line, what we're going to have is, yeah, there's some of that, but there's also a really important context for that uh, um, uh, molecular network. What has it learned in the last X number of years? And what are the stimuli that we are giving it what are we actually stimulating it to do given, you know, at a, at a, basically, basically to me that that question of control at a higher level is not, uh, is not any less uh, real or less valuable. In fact, it's probably much more powerful than trying to micromanage it from the bottom up with, with you know, with, with, with drugs and so on. So I think down the line, that uh, that understanding of it, which, which now we sort of just see it as, as placebo, I think it's a whole constellation of interesting sort of proto-cognitive features of our body organs and, and tissues and so on, that's going to be the main act and the molecular and, and kind of the molecular stuff eventually is going to be the minor part of it. And the rest of it is going to be, you know, the, the major part. Um, I have to, I have to apologize in about four minutes. I mean, this hour has gone by incredibly fast. I can't, I can't believe it's been an hour and uh, I, I'm going to have to go at five because I have, I have another meeting I can't get out of, but we should, we should, we should, if, if you're willing, we should do this again and, and keep going because I, I'm, I'm so most much willing. interesting stuff. I, I, yeah. I, I found this fascinating and thrilling, Mike. I'm so likewise, likewise, so super interesting. Yeah. So grateful, Karen, that you put us together. Exactly. Um, so far, I've only asked one question. <laughs> so we could do this many more times, but um, I'm just glad it worked out. And and uh, and thank you for letting me know that you've got this thing coming up, um, Mike. Um, so we have we have four minutes left. Um, anything you want to say to wrap up before Mike goes? Or me? Oh, uh, uh, any, I, any question you have for him, John? That he could. Well, answer? I, I've got more, but I think they would not be answerable in four minutes. Um, so uh, <laughs> instead, I just remind Mike uh, he was going to send me a couple of things, and uh, if he could do Albert that, Mason on hypnodermatology, psychodermatology, and the yep. other one uh, on the math of emergence. Yes, which, yes, Eric, Eric, Eric Hole's work. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, point you there. Yeah. yeah, and you might, uh, you, you might, you know, I'll introduce you. You can talk to him. I, I, I hired him in our center a few years ago because I thought his work was just uh, incredibly yeah. profound in its in its implications. You know, um, it just, that is that is so that is so cool. Very deep implications. So yeah, please let's let's do let's do this again. I, I we barely scratched the surface of I I, I have so many things I want to hear your take on. So we'll do this again. Well, and I'll, if I'll it's okay in. that I could get those two things, I would also like to put them in the show notes for sure. other people who are following along. Sure, sure, sure. Well, yeah. count me in. Um, let, let's let's set up. Let's set up the next meeting. The, okay. And uh, and and Mike, I really enjoy your manner. Right, you come in. You're, you're very good faith, and there is you know there, there's there's um, you know there's warmth and enthusiasm. It's it's likewise. It's, a pleasure to be in your presence so likewise likewise yeah i feel i feel there's a real opportunity to learn and to uh you know make our craft better and and to get somewhere uh you know uh, together so yeah i think that'd be excellent great. excellent sounds good let's schedule something for the future perfect great talking to both of you thank you likewise. so much all right thank you Karen. thank Thanks you very so much. much bye mike we'll be talking bye -bye. again absolutely thanks bye